Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and I'm thrilled to start the new year off with Dr. Harold Kaplowitz. He's one of the nation's leading child and adolescent psychiatrists. He's the founding president and medical director of the Child Mind Institute in New York City and in San Mateo, California. And he's been repeatedly named in America's Top Doctors, Best Doctor in America, and in New York Magazine's Best Doctors in New York. I am so excited for him to help us start the new year off knowing that there's a lot more anxiety in the air and I can't believe we're still here, but we are. We're going to talk about how to mitigate some of that with just our parenting and also what it means when you really see that there are problems in your child's anxiety, mood, and behavior when to seek help, what that help looks like, what treatment looks like in different ways, different kinds of treatment, and finally, what you can do at home. If you enjoy this episode, please don't hesitate to subscribe, rate, and oh, write a little review if you have a chance and have a wonderful 2022. I I think parenting pre-COVID was still one of the most challenging roles a human can take on. Humans don't have a playbook on this one. There's no licensing procedure. Uh, We just become parents. Very often, we're very fortunate. We have great parents and we follow their lead, but very often we want to do better or different than our parents. And parenting during COVID, I think is extraordinarily difficult because of the uncertainty COVID presents us with. We naturally want to protect our kids. You know, we clothe them, we house them, we educate them, we feed them. And there's this deadly unknown virus out there. And even though it isn't uh, necessarily as lethal to children as it is to adults and uh, the newest variant, Obicron, is less lethal, it still gets people sick. So I think that what we have to remember is that we can be a toxic agent if we're not careful to our kids. And so if we get overwhelmed with anxiety, it's very contagious and kids will catch it. To make matters worse, anxiety is about 35% genetic. And that means that every time you make a baby, uh, men and women make a baby, there's a 35% chance that their kid will get anxiety if one of the partners has anxiety. 
And since we know there's something called assortative mating, A-S-S-O-R-T-I-V-E, anxious people find anxious people to marry. And ADHD people find other ADHD people and moody people find other moody people. So most probably there's a 70% chance of having an anxious kid if you have an anxious partner. And then on top of that, we tend to, you know, that's nature. But then nurture is the fact that we have to fight those urges to overwash our kids' hands or to make them so fearful of the world. So we need to find a very natural balance that takes a lot of work that we want our kids to feel free and comfortable in the real world, uh, but simultaneously safe. And COVID has given us a new challenge for that. And I think if we don't take care of ourselves, it's very difficult to take care of our kids during this time period. When you know that you have anxiety and that you may have partnered with someone with anxiety, similar to all of the things that you were talking about with ADHD, anything, what are some things that the couples can do, partners can do knowing this, not to, you know, regret the choices (laughs) that they made, rather to sort of plan around it? Look, there's intellect over emotion. And it's kind of, it's the first step, right? I recognize that I worry excessively about germs, or I worry excessively about what people think about me in social situations, or I worry about my mom or dad's health excessively. And how do I intellectually reassure my child and practice with my child being brave? And in fact, uh, in, in the book, Uh, I wrote recently, The Scaffold Effect, we talk about the fact that parenting requires that you have to be a strong scaffold yourself. And the book was written pre-COVID, but it's interesting because I said that if the scaffolding isn't secure, if if it isn't based on structure and support and encouragement of yourself, and then a catastrophe comes, the scaffolding falls down and the building falls down, the kid is the building. And guess what? We have that catastrophe. It's called COVID. So if there was ever a time for self-care, being childcare, this is the time. And most of us always put self-care at the bottom of the list. The kids' health, the kids' school attendance, the school kids' extracurricular activities. There's everything else is more important than self-care. And during COVID, I would tell you that self-care is essential for childcare. So sleeping at least seven hours a night, making sure that you're eating properly and not drinking too much that you're doing some exercise every day, 20 minutes of a good walk, if not a more rigorous routine, and certainly doing some mindfulness. You know, if if you're not going to go to church or synagogue or to a mosque, can you sit with your thoughts? Can you not judge your thoughts? Can you let those thoughts come and go? And just think about those four behaviors. Those are great behaviors for your kid to model. Kids do watch what their parents are doing. And so that If you say to yourself, I'm managing risk here, I know that, you know, uh, wearing a mask, washing my hands and uh, keeping a window open if we're going to be with other people or we won't go to a restaurant outside, we'll eat, you know, inside, we'll eat outside, figuring out how we're going to balance that and having discussions with our kids out loud, showing that intellect can override the way we feel the way we feel doesn't necessarily have to dictate the way we behave. And those are good modeling that isn't done just once, but it's done repeatedly. And when we slip up, when we get very excited and we yell at our kids because we're short tempered, because we're so anxious, it's perfectly okay to say, you know what? I need to apologize. 
have gotten so upset about my worries about grandpa or my worries about you getting ill that I got short tempered. And, you know, logic is should stay, you know, we're vaccinated, got the booster. We're doing all these safe things. We don't have to really worry about this. We can. And if we are worried, we can put these worries into a proper place that it's not going to affect the way we behave. We're still going to be able to go outside. We're still going to be able to go to school. Those kinds of, you know, that we're, we're managing the risk. Those are great modeling techniques. And also to admit we made a mistake. I mean, I, I think there's so few sports that we play that you can get, you know, do-overs. Parenting is one of them. I mean, oh, it's, it's like mulligans. Take it again. You know, as long as we're just, you know, realistic about it. I, I was too harsh or I was too, you know, I was thought about it. That really needs a consequence. I, you know, I taught dad and I spoke about it. And the more we thought about it, you know, you, you can't watch, we're going to take away your screens for 24 hours because, you know, that lying was, is a big, you know, it's a big problem or stealing or whatever it was that you minimized and then thought better of it. We might get deeper into that because one thing that is tricky during a time, especially if we know that Omicron is going to just keep on making things a little worse for a while. One thing parents do is when they feel guilty, they, we might make some allowances that undermine all the work we're doing to help our kids not feel as fraught with anxiety because we're trying to help them out. So I'd love to sort of talk about keeping the structure of our households together when we're spinning out a little bit as a society and that you can do both that have those expectations. And, you know, I'm going to have your book in the show notes because the scaffold effect talks about this again, not in the context of COVID, but in general, if you are worried about your child's reaction response experience, sometimes you might not contain their behavior because you feel like they can't handle it. So I'd love to go through that with you and, and then use concrete language like you just did to help parents imagine how to have conversations that do support kids in that way. Right. So I would tell you that I don't think it's a good idea to feel sorry for our children. Uh, I certainly think it's in our DNA to rescue them and we have to fight that urge because that's because what we really want is resilient and self-reliant and secure kids. And how does that happen? Well, failure has to be an option, right? We, we have to let the kid fall down and scrape their knee. And, you know, I had this interesting um, interaction with my uh, three and a half year old grandson who loves to race. So we're going into the park or in the park and he picks some place that he wants to run to a tree or to a bench and we start to race and he really wants to win. And clearly, you know, my legs are longer. And so he's getting in front of me and he fell down twice uh, during one of these races. And I thought the race would end. He got up right away and he kept running. So he really wants to win. And it's very interesting because it's very much, I think, like his father, who was a very competitive athlete. And so you're glad to see that kind of resilience, right? That, you know, and now it's also nothing wrong with letting him lose the race, right? Because sure. he'll try a little bit harder. And especially in the real world where it's, to me, it's another kid. Another kid's not going to run extra slow. But I think that that falling down part is really important that we we let our kids, you know, our kids are not going to always get an A. Our kids are sometimes even going to study and do poorly on a test. 
there are a whole bunch of mean kids out there who are going to either be threatened by our kid or make fun of our kid. And therefore, you know, protecting them from that is impossible. And then how do you deal with that hurt, with that, um, that fear, that, bruised knee or the hurt feelings or the fact that they didn't get invited to a party has to be something that we talk about, something that we understand and empathize with, but not fix. And it's very hard. You know, I I talk about this, that, you know, you need to give structure, you need to give encouragement, you need to give support, but there are planks on a scaffold as you're building the building. One of the planks is, you know, awareness. And another one is patience. But there's one plank called dispassion. And that means for someone like me who is not dispassionate, it means that you can't over cheerlead, you know, and you can't also over sympathize and, you know, and make a mountain out of a molehill. Uh, I was one of those fathers on soccer games where I'm sure I was embarrassing my kids who was screaming so loud. And, and my youngest son was a goalie in lacrosse. And it was really a mediocre team that he was playing on that his high school just big, they should have eliminated lacrosse. And he wore literally a titanium cup so that someday we could have grandchildren. And the defense was asleep and I would be screaming on the sideline, defense, defense, you know, like, don't let my kid get a concussion. And, um, and it happens to be my third son, he's very tolerant. I say, I think, you know, raising children is like pancakes. You're supposed to throw the first two out and just keep going. And <laughs> so he's our third. Two? I thought it was the first one. No, no, no. <laughs> so the third one's very resilient. And so he was very forgiving. In fact, when I didn't come to a game, he would say, everyone's missing your shouting dad, but I am positive that to a typical child, that kind of over-involvement of, of screen or the father, that on base basketball, my middle kid was a very good basketball player. There was a father that was constantly running out to talk to the coach about putting his son into the game. I mean, it was grossly inappropriate because if his son was really good, the coach would have done it. And the message you give to your kid then is you're not that good. You need me to be there to convince the coach to put you in. So in so many ways, dispassion is very important that we are able to sit with our kids' pain and sit with their embarrassment and sit with their shame and empathize, right? And say, that really feels bad, but not overreact. Not, you know, there's a vignette in my book where I talk about my oldest son goes off to sleepaway camp. And I was a very homesick kind of guy. My wife loves sleepaway camp. So, and all three of my kids are jocks. So I thought, you know, eight years old is going up to a very competitive all boys camp. He has all the skills. He's got a great tennis serve. He can swim. He knows how to catch a baseball. You know, he can dribble a ball. We get up there for visiting day and he hugs us just a little too tightly. And he, I said, what's the matter? And he says, I, I want to go home. And so we walk into the woods and I said, what's the problem? And he turns to me and he says, there's not enough people to love me here. And as soon as he says that, I well up, my eyes well up and I think, oh my God, he inherited that homesickness, that separation anxiety for me. I feel like I'm back in sleepaway camp and I wasn't crying, crying, but my eyes definitely welled up. And my son says, dad, don't cry. It's okay. Now that's not good parenting. When your kid is, when your kid is really having a struggle, he shouldn't have to take care of you. Uh, You should be able to listen to him, see if you can brainstorm, figure out a way to make it a little bit better for him. But there's a 
possibility that it's going to be a struggle, that he's going to, it's going to be tough to get over that homesick feeling and those, but it's going to make him stronger, not to punish him, but to tell him that you're there for him, you're supporting him, but you're not crying. You know, that's, that, that's too much. You know, I, I don't know if you know it right now. Um, we just went through this period of early admissions to colleges yeah. and a, a girl called me up and said, I'm going to hear from the school I applied early to at seven o'clock, seven o'clock, the email goes out. It's like a different world than the envelopes that I'm waiting for that envelope. You know, the, yeah. the thick envelope, the thin envelope. Uh-huh. And she said to me, I'm really worried about my mother. I said, what's the matter? I said, if, my mo- if I get rejected, my mother is just going to go berserk and I'm going to feel like I'm not only disappointed in myself, but I disappointed her. Oh, no. And I said, you know, uh, first of all, I think you're going to get in. But second of all, if you don't, it's the school's misjudgment because I think you're a terrific student and you're going to get into lots of good schools and let's not overdo this. But I think you might be mistaken. I think, you know, maybe your mother cares too much about how you feel, not how she does. So as soon as I hung up the phone with her, I thought, you know, I'm going to be a full service child psychiatrist. I called up the mother <laughs> and I said to the mother, can you talk? Oh, I'm so at- Can you go into another room and close the door? Go to the bathroom and close the door. She said, I'm in the bathroom. I said, I'd like you to follow my lead. If, so, if Jennifer does not get in, I want you to say, you know what? you're going to be great. I know there's going to be other schools. Maybe you'll get in early. This is, you know, these are setbacks, but we got this. Don't worry. You'll be fine. You're still a great student. Can you say that? Oh, but she's going to be so upset. Could you repeat after me, please? (laughs) I had to repeat after me. And then she said, thank you. I really appreciate it. I am getting, the mother said, I'm getting lost in this big whirlwind of acceptance and rejection. And then the, the best part was that a few hours later, the mom writes, texts me and she said she got in. Thank you. So I write to my patients, say, congratulations. Enjoy this wonderful moment. It's so well-deserved. And she wrote back to me and said, I couldn't have done it without you. And I said, I beg to differ. I have to tell you, it's your hard work. It's your perseverance. It's your creativity. It's actually your remarkable intelligence. And I think they made the right decision. And, you know, now enjoy not only this moment, but enjoy the fact that the rest of the year is going to be much easier because you're a senior who has a college admission. But I think it's very easy for us to over-identify with our kids because we don't want them to feel pain. And whether you well up when your kid tells you that they're homesick or you get so upset that you start to cry when your kid gets rejected from early decision, those are bad messages because you're basically saying, I feel sorry for you. And I don't think we should feel sorry for our kids. I think empathy is different than sympathy. Yeah. And to, and to differentiate also, if you do well up, like when you were in the woods with your son and you did well up, maybe in that moment it happened, maybe it didn't, you have a little bit of the benefit of your profession, but maybe you can say that the parent has an opportunity to say, I'm welling up but I know how to take care of myself. So like- Well, not only that, I said to him, when he said to me, don't cry, I said to him, you're right. This is not (laughs) worth crying over. We're going to, I'm sure we can be able to figure out a way to make this better. But you didn't take him early from camp. No, we did not. I just want people to hear that. Right, I have to (laughs) say, as we drove away, as we drove away from camp, and remember- my wife was loved camp every minute of camp. You know, she's still friendly with her camp friends. You know, she went from the time she was seven to the time she was 14. I mean, every minute she loved that camp. And as we were driving away and the kid looked really forlorn and, you know, he was standing there. He looked so tiny, you know, this eight year old. She actually said to me, 
I don't smoke marijuana, but you better go stop at a bar. I need to stop at a bar now. I said, it's four o'clock. She said, I, it must be five o'clock somewhere. I really have, to, there's no way we're driving back from Maine now. I need a drink. I just need a drink. And I it said, what's the matter? She said, I can't believe how much, uh, how unhappy he is and how much I wanted him to be happy the way I was. But she was clever enough not to let him see it, you know, and healthy enough. She just shared it with me where I said, I can't believe we're going to stop. We're going to go to some smelly bar here in Maine to get <laughs> to get a drink at four o'clock in the afternoon, you know, and then which one of us is driving. And then it became clear I wasn't be able to drink. She was the only one who's going to be able to drink. So, <laughs> But, you know, it's, it's OK. I think that we're allowed to fall apart like that out of the vision of our child. We don't want it's kind of like fighting. You know, if you're really upset, if your marriage is a high conflict marriage, it's really not a good idea to let your kids see that high conflict. It's much better to go take a walk and yell at each other or hold it in and wait until the kids are asleep and then make sure that they can't hear you when you really have bad disagreements, because those are the kinds of things that make kids anxious. Uncertainty. I mean, that's frankly the COVID problem we have now is the uncertainty. You know, in July, it looked like we were done. You know, we actually had a big dinner party outside where we asked people to please show their vaccination. Mm -hmm. And we didn't even ask them to get tested. And we had, you know, 36 people for a sit down dinner and everyone had a great time. And, you know, it was just perfect. Absolutely perfect. And by August 10th, we canceled the second one. We were supposed to have one in July and one because it was just too much uncertainty already by August. And so I think that that's meaningless, right? A dinner party, not a dinner party, but that kind of we're out, we're done. We're ready to put, you know, this winter, we won't have to be sitting outside, you know, in New York, we're sitting outside, you know, at, at restaurants on the street, the, you were freezing, they gave you a blanket, the food was cold. I mean, I thought to myself, I don't like these people that much that we're eating dinner with, that I have to eat cold, you know, cold soup, you know, it's like, why are we doing this? But it was like, oh, I need people. Do you know I mean? And so, I mean, this past this past uh, Friday, I remember we went to visit some friends and they didn't even ask us. They live in a bubble. Uh, the wife is in her late 70s. The husband is going to turn 90 this month. And we we both got tested before we went. We thought we can't. And we told them when we walked in, they said, oh, thank you so much. We weren't sure if we should ask you. I, th I said to them, I think you should ask everyone yeah. who comes in to see you. I mean, you know, he's a frail 90 year old. But this is managing risk, I think. But the uncertainty of it, I think, is the contagious part. And so I think it makes a lot of sense for parents to come up with a family plan as to how we're going to manage COVID. Now, also, how are we going to manage Omicron? How are we going to manage, you know, uh, you know, I run a bi-coastal not-for-profit. You know, we see patients in New York and we see patients in the Silicon Valley. Well, quite clearly, what's happening in New York right now is different than what's happening in the Silicon Valley. So we're not going to have the same rules and regulations, but we're we're sending out a very comprehensive email this afternoon saying we're going to be rolling this out, looking at positivity rates, looking at um, hospitalization rates and figuring out. But right now, California is going to stay wide open uh, for all services versus in New York, we're going to switch to only essential essential services and the rest is going to be done on a screen, you know, you know, it's interesting. We're about to roll out in California a, an incredible program called Healthy Minds Thriving Kids. And our hope will be that this, you know, there's just a remarkable governor 
in California, Gavin Newsom, and even a more remarkable first partner, uh, Jennifer Siebel Newsom, who has four of her own kids. The governor is very open about his dyslexia. In fact, he just wrote a children's book about dyslexia. But we've since we opened in California around three years ago, we've been working with boys and girls clubs and trying to figure out ways to you know, do prevention. And so it became very clear that getting kids back to school now, they need more skills and parents need more tools to teach their kids skills. So we came up with the concept that there are five things that we need to teach kids more of. Understanding their thoughts, understanding their feelings, managing stressful emotions, relaxation, and mindfulness. And how do you help teachers and parents get enough information about this. So it turns out that if you want to take it to scale, in California, we have 300,000 teachers and we have 6 million public school students. So we've come up with 34 videos, professionally done. They look like something out of HBO and they're about five to seven minutes and they're developmentally specific for lower school kids. There are five of them and there are five for middle school kids and then there are five for high school kids, but they're in Spanish and English. And so they're actually separate ones in Spanish with the Spanish cast, with students who speak Spanish and native languages, so that this isn't this kind of dubbed or, you know, subtitled. And there's videos for parents and teachers in Spanish and English as well. Uh, there's a curriculum for teachers. There's tips for parents. We actually found and we figured teachers are so busy. We are going to incentivize the teachers by giving them a hundred bucks if they you know, watch the videos and then answer some questions. We have a big digital marketing campaign through Facebook and Instagram so that we can get our eyeballs of parents so that they can see this. And our hope would be that if we can do it in California, which is the most populous state, couldn't we do this in New York? Couldn't we do this in Illinois, in Pennsylvania, Connecticut? We're talking to Maryland, Colorado, Nevada. We're talking to so many different governors right now with the idea that we should be able to roll this out because even without COVID, these are five tools. But if we don't accept that going back to school now, especially in January, after being home for you know two or three weeks, is not going to be stressful, then we're fooling ourselves. So we're going to roll this out on January 20th in California. And we hope that other governors will pick it up and will tweak it to make it more state specific. Well, now that the Surgeon General has come out and really taking a stance on supporting mental health and youth. I'm hoping. And children's and children's mental health. Children's mental health. Exactly. Right. And so, and if you read his, it's a 53 page report and he's, he gives um, links constantly to childmind.org and also to our annual, we, we have an annual report called the children's mental health report, but it's, first of all, it's a great surgeon general, it's the same surgeon general. He's, this is the second time around. I don't, I don't think we've had a surgeon general who's done it for four years or eight years and then came back four years later and took on the task again. But if there's a silver lining to COVID, it's that people are starting to recognize how important uh, mental health is, particularly for children, that you can't have physical health without mental health. And look, before COVID hit, the situation was pretty dire. One out of five kids has a mental health disorder in the United States. Depending on the disorder, it takes parents anywhere from two years to eight years from the onset of symptoms to get help. We know that kids with anxiety disorders, which are the most common mental health disorder of childhood and adolescence, uh, only 20% of those kids get help. And if you leave anxiety alone 
it very often morphs into depression when you become an adult or at least an adolescent. Depression is not only bad for your brain, but it's also bad for your life. You're more likely to have unprotected sex if you're a girl. You're more likely to self-medicate if you're a guy. Then you have multiple problems. And we also know that adults who have depression have more physical symptomatology that isn't organic. It's not caused by a tumor, but it's still real. So you have more headaches, you have more palpitations. You go to the physician, you go to your other physicians more often, you cost more money to the healthcare system. So I think this is terrific that we have a Surgeon General who's doing this, but also COVID is making us recognize that five out of five kids' mental health is affected by COVID. That's that they have a mental health disorder, but they are more stressed, they are having more trouble with sleep. We can even tell you which kids, by the way, are more likely to have an effect psychologically from COVID. It turns out that it's kids of color, it's kids of poverty. If there's a lack of routine, we also know that kids who had a pre-existing anxiety or, or mood disorder, kids with learning issues. So we know who's going to get hit. And we're also looking at suicide attempts and suicide completion. And both those things have just jumped dramatically before COVID, and now they went up even more. So if there's only one silver lining that the country then continues to pay attention and say, wait, this is real, it's common, and most gratifying, it's treatable. It's just that we have to get the right diagnosis and then get the right treatment. Kids do really well when they're treated properly. Now we're going to take a break so that I can tell you a little bit about my sponsors. So you know when you really need to see a doctor, you search for one, you find one that looks good, and then you just sit on hold to book an appointment, you rearrange your schedule, and then you find out this doctor doesn't even take your insurance. That's the kind of thing that ZocDoc solves. So here's the deal. When you need a doctor, you want the doctor right now. Not in a few days, not in a few weeks, and definitely not in a few months. If you need to see an MD ASAP, here's the solution. Just download the free ZocDoc app, the easiest way to find a great doctor, and instantly book an appointment. With ZocDoc, you can search for local doctors who take your insurance, read verified patient reviews, and book an appointment in person or video chat. You never have to wait on hold with a receptionist again. All due respect to receptionists, of course. So whether you need a primary care physician, a dentist, a dermatologist, an eye doctor, or other specialist, ZocDoc has you covered. Go to ZocDoc.com slash humans and download the ZocDoc app to sign up for free. ZocDoc makes healthcare easy. Now is the time to prioritize your health. It's January 2022. Go to ZocDoc.com slash humans and download the ZocDoc app to sign up for free and book a top-rated doctor. Many are available as soon as today. That's ZocDoc.com slash humans. We all know play is essential for child development. But did you realize it also has a profound impact on who we become as grown-ups? Our personality, our career path, our interests, play builds a solid foundation for success as an adult. These days, it can be so easy to forget about the importance of having fun, playing. That's why I have been loving the Once Upon a Playtime podcast. It's a show for grown-ups and their kiddos about the power of play. 
Once Upon a Playtime is a podcast from the Genius of Play, a nonprofit initiative that provides families with the latest play research, expert advice, and activities for kids of all ages. Play develops empathy, and it also develops math skills. Play is so important. Once Upon a Playtime features celebrities and well-known personalities whose adult success was shaped by their childhood playtime. The interviews are transformed into storytime experiences that you can listen to by yourself or with your kids. And it can be challenging to find something that is kid-friendly and that you can enjoy. This podcast checks all those boxes. My kids can love it as much as I do. And the format of the show is so unique. It mixes interviews and storytelling, and it makes education entertaining. So tune into the Once Upon a Playtime podcast today. You and your kids are going to love it. Find Once Upon a Playtime wherever you listen to podcasts. And for more information and full transcripts of each episode, visit thegeniusofplay.org. That's Once Upon a Playtime at thegeniusofplay.org. OneSkin is a longevity company led by a team of five PhDs developing solutions to slow down aging. OneSkin harnesses the science of aging to develop products that extend the length of time that skin is healthy and youthful. OneSkin's topical supplement is a daily moisturizer powered by their proprietary peptide OS1, the first peptide scientifically proven to reduce the biological age of the skin. They're not a skincare company. They're a longevity company. OneSkin is fundamentally different from most skincare companies because they're founded and led by longevity scientists versus marketing experts. Simplify your skincare routine so you can ditch the multi-step skincare routine without compromising results because OS1 is designed to be your all-in-one solution to skin health. And because OneSkin products are the results of thorough research and backed by data-validated claims, you can waste less time and money on trial and error searching for effective and safe products. OneSkin's PhD-level aging experts are women. That's my favorite part. And so not only have they done extensive research, they've also had firsthand experience that you can trust. I only started using OneSkin a month ago, and I already feel so good about the improvement and the smoothness and overall appearance of my skin. Look, we can't end aging. And I wouldn't want to because with age comes wisdom and experience. But my skin, I'm totally comfortable stunting the aging process. Visit oneskin.co slash humans and use the code humans for 15% off your first purchase. The code applies to one-time purchases and the first order of subscription purchases. That's O-N-E-S-K-I-N dot C-O slash humans and use the code humans for 15% off your first purchase. Hey guys, I'm Whitney Port and this is With Wit. A lot of you may know me from reality TV and the reality is a lot's happened since the hills. With Wit is dedicated to having real, raw, and occasionally ridiculous conversations with the people who have had a profound impact on me because on With Wit, very little is off limits. Subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing conversations to come. New episodes of With Wit are available every Tuesday on all platforms. What are some of the ways that you can look at? Let's take preschoolers, school age, middle school, high school, school. young adults, right? What are some features where you would say to a parent, 
this is something that you can work on at home versus it's time to seek professional support. And then I'm going to ask you another question, which I'll remind you after, which is what happens when, because we know it's a when, they can't get support because there's no services available. Then what is a parent to do? So I would start out for all three groups with parents knowing their children. And parents will say, well, that's so hard. I think most parents know their kids. They know how they sleep. Do you have an easy sleeper or is this a nighttime visitor? What's their appetite like? Picky eater or they eat everything or they eat excessively. You know, you can't figure out how they're getting weight, but they must have a real sweet tooth. It just seems like they're overeating. Slow to warm up or a kid who just goes into the play group and is really with everyone. And I think you could do that along the way. But, you know, so if a child's behavior changes, if a preschooler or a lower school kid all of a sudden is having trouble sleeping at night, or you see that there's a change in their passion, that they love to play with Play-Doh and now they don't want to, or they loved hanging out with friends and they don't want to, uh, they're resisting going to nursery school, or there's, there's a lot of homesickness or a lot of physical complaints on Mondays for the, your third grader, those are red flags that say something is different. And while I think it's worthwhile ruling out physical illness, because it's so easy, you know, is it a strep throat? Is it an appendicitis? Is it, you know, a COVID? No, we have tests that can show us that, it, you know, mental health disorders is still waiting for a biological test. You know, the, oh, the best right. example is cough. Cough is a symptom. But if you're coughing a lot and you get a strep throat, you know, strep test, you know, that kid needs an antibiotic. If it's a virus and you take some blood and you can tell by the white blood cells that it's a virus, you get rest and tea. If it's a if it's an allergy, you get an antihistamine. And if it's just a scratchy throat, you gargle with salt water. Well, inattention is a symptom also. It's not a diagnosis, it's a symptom. So you could be inattentive because you're bored. You could be inattentive because you have ADHD. You could be inattentive because you're anxious. You could be inattentive because you're depressed. You could be inattentive because your parents are getting divorced and there's so much conflict in your house. And therefore, not everyone should get a psychostimulant like Ritalin or Adderall. And so right now, the only way we can make the diagnosis is history taking. Now, mind you, most of medicine still uses history. I'm a man in his 60s. If I start telling you that I feel like an elephant is sitting on my chest and it's radiating down my left arm, you don't need to take an EKG you have to treat that like I'm having a heart attack. Now, it could be indigestion, but before anything else, you're treating it like a heart attack. The nice part is that we have an EKG and we have a blood test that can confirm the diagnosis. Right now, we're still, that's our holy grail in mental health. We're looking for that biological test. And whether it's a brain scan, whether it's going to be a genetic test, whether it's going to be blood, we're not there yet. We're collecting endless amounts of data. But the same happens when you look at middle school kids and middle school kids actually have the ability to get moody. And so all of a sudden, if you have a sixth grader or a seventh grader who's gotten snappy and irritable with you is saying that, you know, uh, they hate something when before they were kind of neutral or they won't go to little league or they, you know, and they were passionate, they slept with their baseball glove. Those are red flags. And with high school students, it's a little more difficult because adolescents, Adolescent brains are just different than childhood brains and adult brains. So everything is so intense. I'm freezing. I'm boiling. I hate you. I I love you. And I love when parents say, 
no, 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 you don't hate me. No, 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 they, they really hate you. There's no reason. <laughs> don't try to talk them out of it. Just say, I'm sorry you hate me. I still love you, uh, you know, because at that moment, they really, really feel it. You know, I'm so miserable. And if you look at suicide attempts, it's that hopeless feeling they have for the moment. They don't necessarily want to really kill themselves, but they just feel like life isn't worth living. And, and therefore, we should just be with them and say, you know, let's ride this wave together. So if any of those feelings become more intense, if your child stops sleeping, you know, or they're sleeping during the daytime, they're socially isolating, those are times where something has to happen. And, and the way it starts with a parent, I think, is you go back to structure and support and encouragement. But if you feel that no matter how much you're trying, how understanding, how, how empathic you are, that you can see your kid is in a lot of distress and a lot of dysfunction, that they're not performing in school in a way they performed before, and they seem miserable. They're just irritable or socially isolated. Those are red flags that if they last more than two weeks, you have to do something about it. And think about it. If you got a rash after two hours, you run to the CVS or the Dwayne Reed or excuse me, whatever your local pharmacy is and go get some cortisone. And if it's not gone in two days, just a silly rash, we call the doctor. And within two weeks, we're definitely in the dermatologist's office, but we wait, you know, two years. Right. So that's why two weeks, a significant change in behavior that it's, it doesn't have to be all day long, but it has to occur every day. That's when you need to reach out. Now, I would tell you, you're hundred percent right there on a good day in America. We have a shortage of mental health professionals during COVID. It has gotten completely out of control. We actually saw 10,000 more appointments in 2020 than we saw in 2019. And we just saw another 2,500 more in 2021 than we saw in 2020 with less staff because there's a, there's a great resignation. You're right. There are people who are saying, why do I have to come to the office? I'll do it on screen. And then they get overwhelmed. People are just dropping out of the, you know, a lot of mental health and physical health clinicians are dropping out. It's yeah. too overwhelming for them. So I would tell you that the first good step is childmind.org. We actually have a symptom checker. Spend 20 minutes, go through it. And if the symptom checker suggests that there's three possible diagnoses, you just became a more informed parent. It's not a definitive diagnosis. It's a, what we call differential. It's possibly one of these. You pick up the phone, you call the pediatrician, and you say, you know, I have genuine concerns. I think it might be generalized anxiety. It might be depression. It might, the learning center, where do I go? I am concerned. And a pediatrician is going to triage just like an emergency room. If you're gushing blood from an artery, you're going to be seen way before someone who's just wheezing from a mild asthma versus someone who's wheezing that needs, you know, needs immediate attention or a man clutching his left arm is going to clearly going to get ahead of the line. But I think that parents will feel better if they're better informed. I mean, there's, there used to be a company, uh, Cy Sims, an educated consumer is our best customer. I feel an educated parent is a better parent. They feel it's not a little bit of knowledge, it's more knowledge, and then they can reach out to the pediatrician. And a pediatrician can get you to make a decision. You need to go to the emergency room, or this can wait two or three weeks until you get an appointment. I could sleep at night if, if a pediatrician said to me, this can wait. Right. And then it reduces the anxiety in the parent, which will in turn support the kid a little bit better. And, right. and everybody is. And by the way, and I think it's very important. A lot of parents say to me, what am I supposed to tell my kid if we're going to a 
see a mental health professional. Uh, the same thing you would tell them if you go see an allergist. You know, you're, you're sneezing a lot. It doesn't make a lot of sense. I'm your parent. I want to make sure that we understand why you're sneezing. Is this some kind of virus you have? If it's an allergy, we need to get a diagnosis. But, you know, you're very unhappy lately. You're not enjoying school as much. You seem to be incredibly grumpy. And we need to figure what's that's going. It's my job as a parent to figure this out with you. And that's it's not because you're crazy or stupid or lazy. It's that you seem incredibly unhappy and um, and not getting joy out of the things that used to give you joy. And and by the way, very articulate kids could say, well, you know, why should I be joyful? There's COVID. There's divisiveness in our society. All of that's true. You are just you're not sleeping well. We you know, so we're going to do this together as a family. We're going to go. Mom and dad is going to take you to figure this out. Okay. So working on that, let's do a little role playing here. If that child doesn't want to go and they've given you all their reasons, can you speak as the parent, you know, is there a place to just say, we're going, we're going to do this. Right. So you can say, you can say, I hear, I hear all of your arguments. Mm -hmm. They all make a lot of sense and maybe you're right. So when we go see the doctor, it'll be a total waste of time and a total waste of money because they're going to tell us that, you know, there's nothing, this is just normal teenage, teenager behavior. This is just normal childhood behavior. And how unfortunate for you, you just have a very neurotic mom or dad who, (laughs) who just worry about lots of things. And, and I, I think, I know it's worth the time. It'll make all of us feel a lot better if we could figure out if this is just a phase or if there's something we could do to make it easier for you and make you more comfortable. And at the end of the day, sometimes we do have to say, you know, no, I'm sorry. You know, I'm in charge. It's my responsibility. We go, I'm not going to talk to the person. I said, well, I hope you will talk to them. I mean, I, I get that all the time where a parent says to me, my child said they're not going to talk. So why are we coming? I said, well, we'll all get together. I usually, I always start together with everyone in the room. And I say, you know, I'd like to know, is this a feeling problem? Is this a behavior problem or is this a thinking problem? And I define them and I ask the, the kid first and I say, is this new or old? Did you have it last Christmas? Did you have it in the summertime? And then I ask the same question of mom and dad, just so we can see if we're on the same page. Sometimes we're not on the same page. And then I say to the child, you know, I'd like you to wait outside or the teenager. I hope you have something to keep you occupied. If you need something, my assistants are out there. Um, and I, let me just tell you, I'm going to keep your secrets. So if you tell me something, I just need to come up with the diagnosis. So I would hope you're not going to lie to me. I'd rather you just say, I don't want to talk about it. But the regular doctor gets you to take your shirt off and put the stethoscope or stick something in your ear. That doesn't work for me. I can only rely on your history that you tell me. And then I just need to come up with a diagnosis. I don't have to tell your parents. Now, there's two exceptions. If you tell me you're going to kill yourself or kill somebody else, I'm going to stop you. That's not going to happen on my watch. Mm -hmm. But I want to tell you also that we, I will tell you what your parents tell me. So if your parents are telling me you're watching eight hours of TV or you're on screens for eight hours, I'm going to say, what's that about? You know what I mean? So, but if they're fighting a lot about something else, that's none of your business. I, I have to tell you that one of the last patients I saw a few months ago, the parents had a brutal divorce. I helped them with the divorce through their divorce attorneys, sent them to me, things calmed down. And now one of their children became very symptomatic. And she started cutting. And so the parents decided that they wanted to come and see me. And one of the things I learned during the very beginning was that this girl had decided 
that she was trans and she was 11 years old and that she they changed their name to a more neutral name. And the pronoun they wanted was they or them. And that's sometimes very challenging in sentences because they and them is a plural Mm -hmm. and she and he is a singular. So while we were all sitting together, they kept their hat down below their eyes. They didn't want to talk to me. And uh, later on, when they came back in, we started chatting and I kept messing up. I kept and I kept apologizing. I'm sorry. I keep saying she. I should say they. It became very clear that this was more than the divorce and that they needed a more higher level of care. They must likely need to go to some kind of therapeutic school and that they recognized that mom and dad were just making it worse. It wasn't causing it, but it was making it worse. The parents came back in. The father was particularly annoyed with me because he felt that when I helped them with the divorce, I was too nice to the mom. I mean, who? so he yelled at me in the middle of me talking because I referred to the child as she instead of they. And he said, it's she, it's they, not she. And the child said, dad, Dr. Kopoulos is really trying. It's just that he's old. <laughs> but Okay, we made a connection. I mean, I can help this child. This child knows I'm so on true. their side, right. you know, and dad, you know, back off. I know you want to relitigate the divorce. I'm not the judge. You know, that train left the station. But the trick is that here was a child who told their parents, I'm not talking to Dr. Koplowitz. And at the end of the day, more figuratively speaking, they take their clothes off. They show you their heart. They show you their brain. And then, you know, we, we don't want to expose them too much. You want them to kind of cover up and feel that they can walk out of the office and feel not too vulnerable. But that's what you're really hoping for. And it's the job of the clinician to worry about whether or not the child's going to talk to you, not the parents. The parents have to feel comfortable that the clinician's going to try their very best to get the answer. So I'm curious, by the way, side note, I think everybody's a little bit old, when, you know, over 40 probably, when it comes to understanding and becoming fluent in new, the new language yes. gender. So I feel like that's, you could- Right, but I think we should try. Gender. I think we should- we should Absolutely. be very respectful and and we'll not judge. And, you know, and it's not all the same to everybody. It's just and it's so easy to minimize it and say, you know, it reminds me of my parents getting upset when I looked at co- read comic books. You know, they, they were dangerous. You know, I think they uh, if they don't kind of, come on, you know, I, and I was annoyed that, they, you know, they couldn't appreciate the Beatles. You know, it's kind of. <laughs> yeah. It didn't make you not like the Beatles or any less. Right. Right, Right. right. So there are so many different directions to take the final uh, question or thoughts. Part of me wants to ask, like to push further with the treatments. Like if a child is experiencing acute loss or there's something that happened and well, let's talk about, let's talk about treatments because I think too much attention is paid, put to psychopharmacology. So in my opinion, Pediatric psychopharmacology is amazing. It just, it, it, it occurred, it started really happening in the 19, late 1930s with Benzedrine, which was the derivative of Dexedrine, which is now Adderall. And then in 1970, there was wide commercial use of Ritalin, which is Focalin and a whole bunch of other psychostimulants, which expand your attention span. And you never get the same, if you have ADHD, you never get the same attention as the typical kid. but certainly better than before. And when your attention is 
longer, you tend to be less impulsive, you'll be less hyperactive. And we had Tofranol and Elabil and Desipramine in the 1970s, and it just didn't work that well for depression in kids or anxiety in kids. It, it turned out to be pretty good for bedwetting, but that's not a really very common you know, thing that you'd give drugs for. In the 1980s, we got SSRIs, and these are real miracle drugs. And even though people think of them as Prozac as an antidepressant, it's the fact that they let serotonin hang around your brain longer that makes them very effective for obsessive compulsive disorder, for other anxiety disorders, and for depression. And also with kids, kids do a lot better with meds because they are, their brains are fresher so that, and their symptoms are younger. So treating someone who's been suffering for something for 10 years or 15 years, is going to be a lot harder than someone who's been suffering for six months or a year. And the best news is that with stuff like SSRIs, Prozac like drugs, you only take them for about a year and then you slowly wean the kid off the medicine and you just change the trajectory of their life. That, that's as far as I'm concerned, that's a miracle. The problem is we haven't any new real medications since the 1980s. So our toolbox is kind of empty. You know, the difference between Celexa and Lexapro and Prozac is minimal. You know, it has less side effects, but those side effects never bothered kids. You know, you have things like uh, clonidine and guanfacine, which really started as antihypertensives. I mean, the pharmaceutical industry has not been invested in central nervous system drugs and particularly for kids. So you know, I have a toolbox and I'm pretty good at using it, but the real advances in children's mental health have happened with psychotherapy. And the psychotherapies are evidence-based psychotherapy. So it's not rent a friend, it's not play therapy, it is behavioral therapy, which has been around for a long time, which is carrots and sticks, you know? It's Weight Watchers, it's, you know, we will reinforce positive behavior and we will try to ignore negative behavior. And it works. Behavioral charts work. You can get a kid to sleep uh, in their own room if they know this is what's expected of them. And here are the rewards. And cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, which was invented in around the 70s by a psychiatrist at the University of Pennsylvania, Aaron Beck, is really kind of amazing because the way we think affects the way we feel, which affects the way we behave. And if we can break one of those cycles, things work. And again, it's 12 sessions. So if you do cognitive behavioral therapy, for 12 sessions, along with an SSRI, and you have an anxiety disorder and you're under the age of 18, 81% of the kids get better in 12 weeks. Miracle, as far as I'm concerned. What other part of medicine gets that kind of treatment? And if you have depression, it's 71%. And if you have ADHD and you do parent management training or parent-child interaction training, which, you know, again, focusing on positive behavior, ignoring insignificant off-test behavior, intervening when a child does something egregious, you get dramatic changes and teachers can be trained to do this also. And I think the most interesting new treatment is dialectical therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT, is really cognitive behavioral therapy meets Zen Buddhism. Okay. And, and again, you can't just do it. Do you mean, I don't know how to effectively do DBT or CBT. I can do behavioral therapy, but I think that social workers and psychologists who have taken this training, uh, DBT is great for emotional dysregulation for kids who cut, for kids who go from zero to 60 in 10 seconds. And what's really interesting, it breaks all the traditions. So if you're really feeling terrible, the dialectic says, you know, I understand you want to kill yourself. Let's go with that feeling. Let's 
ride that wave together because 10 minutes ago you were feeling great. So we'll ride the wave until you feel great again. And you should know that you can call me any night for 10 minutes after six o'clock from six to seven, I'm available to speak to you. So you're teaching kids to hold their feelings, not to act on them. And DBT has shown to have remarkable um, effectiveness for these kids who have these intense emotional dysregulation, which could be a kid with ADHD, or it could be a kid with depression or intense anxiety. So I think that the advances in the last 20 years of these psychotherapies have been really impressive. And the fact that you can do them for a limited amount of time and then decide to do them again or to wait and give a child time to practice is really quite significant. So that at the Childline Institute, instead of a kid being seen Tuesday at four o'clock, 50 times, whether or not they need it, they come on average 16, it should be 16 times, which opens up more openings for us to be able to see more kids. Instead of the beginning of the year, you filled up all the doctors time yes, and, and you're no done. Openings. And when you're thinking, do you really need, I love when mothers say, don't you love my kid? I adore your child. I just wish they were doing ballet or climbing a mountain or playing little league. Don't come to see me. If they need to see me, we can always open up an appointment, which is a different mindset than something that dates like back to Zygmunt Once you have Freud. a therapist, you always have a therapist. Right, right. Which is different for adults who, who basically kind of use them as coaches or sounding boards because it always blows my mind when you hear that someone's seen their doctor for 25 years. I mean, it's, it's not what I want for my kid. So when parents have the worry that there's too much focus on the cognitive behavioral, not enough on the relationship, or when they're worried that everything is over-medicated, I know you have <clears throat> a, an elevator pitch for this. Right. And I know my audience has so many wildly mixed feelings about, I mean, nobody's listening to this particular podcast that isn't interested in evidence-based. Right. So, so let's, but let's talk about, let's talk about the fact that we really want to treat the whole child. Yeah. But we want to treat the whole child with effective treatment. And I will tell you, as a pediatric psychopharmacologist, as the editor in chief for 24 years of the Journal of Child and Adolescent Psychopharmacology, that no pill is better than any pill if medicine isn't needed. Because every time you take a pill, there's a positive effect and there's a potential negative effect. You take too many aspirin, it's going to thin your blood, which is going to make clotting difficult. Take too many Tylenol, it's going to affect your kidneys. So there's always a cost-benefit ratio. Um, I feel so strongly about this that the Childline Institute does not take money from the pharmaceutical industry. You know, they literally have given us checks, unsolicited checks, and we send them back, which is pretty hard to do when you're running a, an non independent nonprofit mm -hmm. where money is important. And we don't let pharmaceutical representatives come on the grounds of the Childline Institute because inevitably they're very attractive, they're very uh, articulate, and they come with food and pens and post-its. And you find yourself writing a prescription for Lexapro, which is 10 times more expensive than Prozac and hasn't shown any more effectiveness in kids than Prozac. So I think that it'd be foolish to throw out the baby with the bathwater because Psychopharm is important for certain kids for kids who have severe obsessive compulsive disorder to treat them sometimes just with, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy exposure and not, you know, uh, response prevention sometimes is too painful and you need to have those simultaneously. 
You don't want to just be supportive of a kid because that doesn't bring, bring on behavioral change. You want to have someone who knows what they're doing with either cognitive behavioral therapy or DBT or behavioral therapy, but you don't want them to be an automaton. You want them to be a human being. You know, I think the fact that that patient said to me, they could tell I was trying and they could tell I'm old. So the fact was, I wasn't, yeah, I was authentic. And, and the fact that, you know, I have a patient who is now 43 years old. And when he was seven, he came to see me. He was in second grade. And he said to me, it really bad ADHD. And when I was able to treat him for his ADHD, we found out he had a terrible reading problem too. And the school threw him out. And so he ended up going to a school that wasn't as prestigious. And, and by the way, his parents couldn't stand me. And the way I knew that was they were walking on the street one day and they saw me and they crossed to the other side of the street. I mean, it was boy, oh boy, you know, <laughs> when you do that to your pediatrician. So, um, 25 years go by, he's seven, he's now 32. And I get a phone call from him and I have a very good memory, obviously. And the assistant says, we can't find the chart. I said, the chart's in some storage. It's 25 years ago. And he tells me my life is falling apart. My marriage is no good. My business is falling apart. This economic tsunami is killing the mortgage business. And I need to see a psychiatrist. I said, fine, just tell me where you live and I'll get to the name of a good psychiatrist. He said, I live in New York City. I want to see you. And I said, but I'm a child psychiatrist. And he said, but you're my child psychiatrist. And I don't want to tell the story again. And it's really interesting because I did it all pro bono. The the guy was going bankrupt, right? And so he comes in to see me. He's a man now. He was a beautiful little child, you know, with dark skin and beautiful green eyes. And and he said to me, "Um, Dr. Coppolitz, you haven't changed a bit. I said, if that's true, you need an ophthalmologist, not this child psychiatrist. (laughs) But the fact that, you know, I was authentic. I went to visit him up at school. He said, I remember you told me my teacher was mean. It was a mean teacher. Every time someone else made it, something go wrong in the class, her back was turned, she'd pick on my kid. So I think he could see that, you know, what I was doing for him was good stuff. I mean, the medication really worked. The behavioral therapy that his parents and I did really worked. But it was the fact that we had an authentic relationship. And so in many ways, one what, what you're saying, because we can't replicate, everybody can't have you, but what families can look for is someone who is not only skilled, but in that skill is this authentic way of communicating with the child and that relationship, like dating, like there's a connection and that's going to be- And you need that. There's no doubt. That's essential. But you want someone who's more than just a nice guy or a nice woman. You want someone who has a toolkit that has effective tools in it. So I know you have to go. Are there three things that parents can do in light of the fact that they may not know if they need to move towards treatment or they are going to take six months before somebody gets them off of a wait list? Are there three things parents can do in this new year to help kids move through anxiety in a little healthier way? So I would say one, self-care, take care of yourself, model, you know, mindfulness, model good eating, model exercise, model sleep because that's gonna help your child. Number two, be aware of who your child is. You know, get a baseline, recognize your child's assets and their deficits and don't judge them, but try to see if you can accentuate their assets and kind of minimize their deficits, whether that's a tutor, whether that's sitting with them and reading with them more if they're struggling with reading. And the third thing is, please try to find time to have fun with your kid. You know, a walk, 
throwing the ball, listening to music. It really doesn't make a difference what it is. But remember that even in the middle of COVID or the stress of life, there has to be time where we just enjoy being with our kids, drawing a picture, you know, find out what they like. My father used to say, you always ask your kids what they want to do. I thought, you know, I don't really care whether we go in a boat or we go to the carousel or we throw a ball. I want them to make memories with me. And the only way that's going to happen is I have to pick what they want, not what I want. 